Welcome to the Taking Cancer On podcast, brought to you by Beringer Ingelheim and presented by me, Sebastian Hermelin. In this series, we seek to demystify the role of Big Pharma in developing cancer treatments, and in doing so, I want to take you on a deep dive into the lives of our very special guests. What are their North Stars? Why are they so committed to what they do? And what are their hopes for the future? Join us on this journey and remember to subscribe to the series and share the podcast with others who are inspired to take cancer on. Following on from our first episode, which focused on very early drug discovery, today we'll talk about when potential treatments reach the clinic and are ready to be tested in humans. We're fortunate to be joined by two guests for this episode, so allow me to introduce Ivy Elkins, co-founder of the EGFR Resistors Patient Group, who is herself a lung cancer survivor, and the corporate vice president and global head of oncology medicine at Beringer Ingelheim, Victoria Sassolina. It's wonderful to meet both of you and welcome to the podcast. Victoria, uh, please tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, where you're from, uh, and the journey into your clinical research career. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Sebastian, and nice to meet you, Ivy, again. I think we've uh, seen each other on several occasions through our work. So geographically, I'm coming from Russia, um, but I'm also coming from the family of medical doctors, medical professionals that heavily impacted the choice and influenced the choice of my career. Um, so I have become a medical doctor. I've been working in a normal hospital environment and fairly quickly realized that apart from the medicines that we can use in the daily practice, some of them coming from 20, 30 years ago, um, there is a big world of new research and new drug development that holds such a big promise for patients with different diseases. And this is how I actually stepped from the direct medical career into the medical career within the pharmaceutical industry to become one of those clinical developers, as we call this um, this role, um, and play my role in bringing the new drugs to patients. That is fantastic. And I think we should introduce Ivy now as well. Welcome, Ivy, to the podcast. I'm super excited about having a patient representative here, but you're so much more than a patient representative, right? You're a lung cancer survivor, and you're also the founder of a lung cancer uh, patient group, the EGFR uh, Resistors. So tell us a little bit more about who you are. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sebastian. Um, I um, was diagnosed back in 2013 with stage four non-small cell lung cancer. I live in the Chicago area with my family, which is my husband of almost 25 years and two boys, um, one of which is 20 years old and the other one will be 18 in about a month. But back in 2013, when I was diagnosed, they were quite young. They were 10 and 13 years old. And my diagnosis was a big shock to me because I um, just had some pain and difficulty with straightening my elbow and my neck hurt a little bit. And I went on a six-month journey, basically, to figure out what was causing this. Um, initially, no one was concerned at all. I 
went to physical therapy and um, orthopedists and had cortisone shots in my elbow. But eventually it became obvious that there was something that wasn't easily fixable. And I had an MRI of my elbow and found out that there was a mass that had eaten away part of the bone. Um, That led to a biopsy and a full workup. And um, before I knew it, I was diagnosed with um, cancer that had started in my lungs and moved to my bones. That's why I had the pain in my elbow and my neck. But I also had eight small brain lesions that I had no idea about. So a pretty, you know, large amount of cancer for someone who didn't have any of the symptoms that you would normally associate with lung cancer, like coughing, wheezing, um, shortness of breath, nothing like that. And I was shocked to find out that, you know, I had lung cancer. I was healthy, active, 47 years old at the time. Um, I was very fortunate, however, because I was diagnosed as I was tested and found out that I had an EGFR mutation and I had a fantastic response to targeted therapy. All my brain meds disappeared. um, My bones healed over my lung tumor shrunk. And early this year, I actually became eligible for surgery to remove my upper right lobe of my lung because it was the only area remaining in my body that still had active disease. I'm considered NED today, having no evidence of disease, which is incredible and certainly not what I expected when I was first diagnosed back in 2013. Um, Along the way, because you know, as I mentioned before, I really benefited from these targeted therapy treatments. I felt have felt really well and, you know, have had a fantastic quality of life. So I decided that I wanted to get involved in advocacy efforts to help other patients and help accelerate research, in particular in the type, the subset of lung cancer that I have. So I founded a group along with a few others called the EGFR Resistors. And this is a group based um, mostly online. We, you know, started in mid-2017. We have close to 2,500 members now that span over 70 different countries. And we do a lot of things in order to accelerate research, including funding grants, which we are doing, working on right now to actually figure out patient-driven research based on the needs we've identified from our own community. That is fantastic. I think it's it's always wonderful to hear about patients that actually that go through this ordeal and make something beautiful out of it. And before we really deep dive into clinical trials, perhaps you, Victoria, want to sort of, to get us started, explain a little bit more about what a clinical trial actually is and why they are so necessary. The clinical trial is probably the last and the most important step in preparing the drug to reach the patients. And this is when you have to answer a lot of questions that would pertain to humans and how this drug behaves in humans, what kind of benefit it brings, and what kind of risks could be associated with the drug. The only way to show 
the relevance to humans is to go into human clinical trials. And this is why it's so important to have them well set up and prepared to answer these questions. Victoria, I know that you've been uh, working when it comes to uh, clinical trials and clinical trial management for quite some time. But what has kept you in this line of profession for so long? And why are you still excited about what you do? I think this is curiosity. This is a scientific curiosity. It's never boring. You encounter different diseases, different types of patients, different drugs, different concepts, different ways of administration, even different competitors that makes it each time you go with every drug, with every project. Thanks, Victoria. Uh, It's easy to understand why people stay in research when there's always something new to be curious and excited about. So, Ivy, let's come back over to you and your role as a patient advocate. Could you tell us what the benefits are for patients participating in clinical trials? Uh, I'm sure you've spoken to a lot of patients about this. There are a number of benefits for patients to participate in clinical trials. First of all, um, for a lot of patients, that's the way to access life-saving medications that might not, you know, be available any other way. So patients frequently in our community of EGFR lung cancer frequently go to clinical trials to get a treatment that might work better for them than, say, a standard of care treatment such as chemotherapy. Um, Another benefit for patients in participating in clinical trials is that they usually get medical care, lots of follow-ups, scans, um, teams of people kind of managing and, you know, treating any side effects that they might develop from the, um, the experiment. I think clinical trials represent hope for patients, hope that there is a new drug in development that could become the next, you know, standard of care treatment that they can get access to earlier rather than later. And Ivy, with regards to uh, being positive towards clinical trials from a patient perspective, do you meet resistance to Uh, the concept of clinical trials and patients that don't want to participate for this or that reason? It really varies. There still is distrust and a lack of understanding about clinical trials that, you know, does exist in the patient community. Um, My group, my EGFR resistors patient group, we try to help dispel those myths about clinical trials, but there are patients who are afraid that they're going to be given a placebo as opposed to the real drug. So they worry that they're not going to be treated for their cancer at all. And we let them know that that is not the truth, that no one will get treatment that's less than the standard of care when participating in a clinical trial. I've heard about this as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a risk and reward measure. And you have to kind of balance, you know, the chance of getting an excellent treatment versus the chance of possibly having side effects. There are a lot of reasons why patients might not want to go on a clinical trial. And some of those are also dependent on financial aspects, where they live geographically, if they're not near a hospital that's offering that type of clinical trial, um, whether their oncologist is 
talking to them about clinical trials or not. Um, there are many things that can impact patients' understanding and willingness to try clinical trials. Yeah. And just to sort of highlight some numbers, in the European Union, I think there's about 3% of patients that participate in clinical or observational trials. So my question to both of you is, where, is the, where, where does the problem lie? Do we need to educate patients? Do we need to educate doctors and nurses? Do we need to build infrastructural systems? Or what can we do to improve this? I believe that education needs to go both ways. Patients do need to be educated about clinical trials um, because, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions. But physicians also need to be educated about them because um, many lung cancer patients see more general oncologists, not necessarily thoracic oncologists. And the majority of the lung cancer community is treated in local hospitals as opposed to the major academic centers that have the clinical trials. And because of that, not every oncologist is aware of all of these options or even where to tell patients to go in order to find clinical trials. We've found in the EGFR resistors community, and we've surveyed our members, that a much higher number than the 3% that's average participate in clinical trials. It's more like 20, 25%. And that's because we make patients aware of these trials. And we found that patients are willing to travel to get, they are willing to go to a different medical center to get access to a trial that they might not be able to get locally, but they need to know about them. And they also need, sometimes they need financial assistance in order to make that possible for them to accomplish the traveling, pay for parking fees that add up at, you know, major medical centers in downtown locations, childcare, you know, things like that. Those are barriers that real people experience, you know, out in the real world. Yeah. And Victoria, I want to invite you to this uh, conversation as well here, because I know that researchers at pharmaceutical companies doesn't necessarily have direct one-to-one -one contact with the patients participating in clinical trials. So can you explain sort of some of the barriers that you see from your perspective as well? Thank you, Sebastian. And I think the interesting statistics you, you have used in 3% number, right? That this is how many people in Europe are participating in clinical trials. I have come across statistics for the US where it varied between 5 to 10%, depending on, you know, bigger cities, smaller cities, etc. depends on where you go to ask the question. On the other hand, it's up to 70% of patients when asked would say, yes, I would consider participating in clinical trial. And to me, exactly the same dilemma is 5% are there, but 70% are willing. So where is the disconnect? And I think if you look at the barriers, there could be several. Structural barrier, and Ivy spoke about that. There could be some clinical barriers, and, and this is where us as a pharmaceutical industry need to get better. And we are working together with FDA, and actually FDA are issuing new guidelines on that aspect, that the criteria that we are using to allow the patients to get into the trial sometimes can be very strict. 
And there could be a rationale for that, especially in the earlier parts of the journey when you are much more conscious about your drug. But as we go, as we learn more about the drugs, absolutely, we need to be more open to losing those criteria, bring them closer to real life, to real world patients. The other aspect that, as I was talking, just came to my mind is that sometimes people are willing to take part in a clinical trial, but it happens so that this particular institution does not have a suitable trial for this patient. So they might have something for stage four lung cancer patients, but nothing for stage three. So this is where I guess the institutions themselves need to maybe step up and think about, if you will, portfolio of clinical trials that they want to run simultaneously by tailoring to the type of patients, the community that they serve. And that's where we could work together as well. So while it's important to understand the current issues for clinical trials, I, as well as I think most of our listeners, want to know where are we going? Because we know today that patients want to participate and we know that researchers want to come up with new cures for cancers to improve survival rates and also the overall quality of life for everyone affected. But what can we do together? Can we bridge the gap between the research community and the patient community? Absolutely. I think there's there's many ways to bring these worlds together and they should come together because I think it, it, it almost goes without saying that the faster you are in your clinical trials, the sooner you bring your new advancements to, to real patients in, in real life, right? Announcing your effort, I think it's very important for us being transparent on what we are doing. And to that extent, obviously, there are some search engines. Um, there are some websites like clinicaltrials.gov where we are all declaring what kind of trials we are doing. So that could be one good source of information, not only for patients, but also for oncologists in this case. Um educational efforts about what clinical trials are, like what we are discussing today. Sometimes we do certain steps within refined, perfect scenario of clinical trials, but more and more, I think we'll be hearing about real-world data with all the potential of unlocking the databases, the, the data lakes, etc. So finding the answers even without kind of real patients sometimes. Yes. And Ivy, what do you think? one of the missing links in clinical trials is patient involvement. I think it's really important to get patients, patient groups, patient advocates involved in clinical trial design from the very beginning, because that way there can be input on what patients need, what patients want, Things that will turn patients off from enrolling can be pointed out in an earlier stage where possibly they could be adjusted. Um, to me, that is the key to increasing enrollment in clinical trials, working with advocacy groups and working with patient groups. There are hundreds of clinical trials out there varying from, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three. It's very difficult for patients on their own to figure out what's the best clinical trial for them to participate in. I know Victoria mentioned um, a little earlier clinicaltrials.gov, which is the main database that people can go to to find clinical trials. But that's not an easily navigatable 
database for most patients. So one of the things that we also really need is a better way to target clinical trials that would be right for us. Um, A search engine, um, some sort of guidance to really find the best possible clinical trials, because it's hard to do that on your own as a patient within the existing system, unless you have a physician who will help you with that. I just wanted to say, I would argue that this connection between the patient and the physician to help choose the right trial is extremely important. There could be hundreds of trials targeting what seems to be this patient's type of cancer, but the devil is in the detail. You need to read about the molecule, where you might have a higher chance to benefit. It is still an experiment, clearly risks risks benefits, but to increase the benefits, I think it's extremely important that the professional advice is sought to say, which one makes sense for me, doctor? So I I would see a lot of partnership there. Yeah. And I mean, when also when it comes to recruitment to clinical trials, if I was a patient and I go to my doctor, um, I would sort of rely on my specific doctor to tell me all the options that I have. Uh, do you think that's feasible today to get all the options as a patient or is something missed out on? I think um, it really depends on who your doctor is, whether you're going to get all the clinical trial options mentioned to you and how aware and thoroughly your doctor understands the lung cancer community um, and the different options. Um, One of the things that groups like mine, like the EGFRV sisters do, is we have patients, real life patients in the group who are currently on existing trials. And they often self-identify and say, this is the trial I'm on. This is these are the side effects I'm experiencing. I've had a certain number of scans. It's working. It's not working. And that those real-life experiences that can be shared within a subgroup like our group brings a lot of interest in a particular trial. Um, and what often happens is people who are part of the group might bring knowledge of that trial that you know they've heard of another from another patient to their oncologist and ask their oncologist about that specific trial um, often that's a very good way of you know learning about something that your doctor might not know about it's you know a really effective way to spread the word we have, you know, connected with a number of pharmaceutical companies and have a monthly newsletter. Um, Our group where we highlight new research and we highlight clinical trials that might be of interest to our specific subset of the lung cancer community. And there's other groups like ours focusing on different mutations or different types of lung cancer that do similar things. So that's a great way to get trial information directly to patients where, you know, typically there isn't any direct contact between pharmaceutical companies and patients. If, you know, the the patient group can get that information out to them. I want to touch upon another subject, which is the length of clinical trials. 
so I have some numbers, and Victoria, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, sort of a blockbuster drug within oncology it takes about 10 years, five to 10 years to develop ish. It costs a lot of money, but we're also recording this during sort of the height of the corona pandemic wave two. Uh, and within one year, we have, I think, one or two approved vaccines already. So when you're comparing sort of the clinical trials when it comes to new treatments for cancer and vaccines for a new pandemic, can you tell us about the differences? And if you see a possibility where we could move forward uh, faster when it comes to cancer research. Talking about the statistic something around eight to 10 years. That was a standard drug development, clinical drug development timeline. And we are still on this timeline for some drugs. However, most recently in the last probably five, six years, we have seen tremendous speed of development of some molecules. Coming back to the question about COVID, I'm really happy that we can be so fast in the sphere of virology and vaccine development. Unfortunately, I don't think the same timelines could be applicable to investigating cancer treatments simply because we are looking at the different endpoints, clinical endpoints. And what I mean, the results, how do you judge that this drug is effective or not? In case of vaccines, um, I'm not sure how much the audience are familiar with the endpoints that they measure. They need to introduce the vaccine, a couple of injections, and for example, 14 days later or 21 days after the last injection, they check who has got COVID and who has not or who develops whatever symptoms. So this is the end point. You don't have to wait too long. It's about a month, two months after you introduce this participant to the trial. In oncology, we are looking at the endpoints that talk about how long does the cancer not progress? How long do the patients live with cancer? And that is a hopefully, hopefully, a much longer period of time that we need to observe the patients and treat the patients um, and large groups of patients. And this is where the duration comes from. So the longer the trial, in a way, it potentially could be even more positive because you are extending that endpoint that you're measuring. But you're right, we all need to share this sense of urgency because behind every trial and the end of each trial, there are patients and groups of patients who need it urgently. Ivy, when it comes to the corona pandemic as well, how has that affected your patient group, the people that you spend time with and that you know? How has, how has everyone been affected by this? You know, there have been some pluses and minuses of um, lung cancer treatment during the pandemic. On the plus side, um, many people who are enrolled in clinical trials have found that there was more flexibility introduced into those trials than they've experienced before. They've been able to do trial visits via telemedicine. They often have been able to do scans or blood tests locally rather than having to go to the location of the clinical trial. In some cases, if they are getting a targeted medication that say they need to fly somewhere normally to get, that's been mailed to them. And those have been really good things for the lung cancer community that we actually hope some of that flexibility will remain, you know, once we finally no longer have, you know, coronavirus around. On the 
negative side, you know, there is obviously a lot more concern in the lung cancer community about coronavirus itself and its impact on us as patients who are already dealing with lung cancer and, you know, safety concerns and, you know, fear of exposure, fear of being exposed by people who live in your household, fear of not being able to have the same access to your doctors, and fear of if you get coronavirus and need to be hospitalized, whether, you know, you would even be in line for treatment if the hospitals are already, you know, maxed out. So, you know, it's it's a kind of a double-edged sword. Some clinical trials that hadn't already opened were also postponed that, you know, could be, could have led to life-prolonging treatment for some patients. So there have been a lot of, yeah, there have been a lot of different issues that have come up. For everyone, but cancer patients in particular. Thank you for sharing that. Now, Victoria, we've spoken about our current situation, but when it comes to future ambitions and the clinical treatment portfolio at BI, where do you think we might be in, say, the next five to 10 years, if that's the right time span? Five or 10 years is a good time span because this is how long it takes, as we discussed a bit earlier, to, for the drug to show itself and to show its potential in a more standard way. Um, but I think as a com- as our company, as many other companies, are trying to be much more ambitious because we understand and get this sense of urgency. We chose to focus on a couple of areas which are large in themselves. These, are cu- these couple of areas are lung cancer, which in itself represents several different types of diseases. But we want to enhance and deepen our presence and really be fit for purpose for various types of lung cancers. On the other hand, we are making first steps, but very firm steps with a rich portfolio going towards um, GI malignancies. So it's a gastrointestinal cancers. Again, quite a broad group of malignancies, uh, sometimes with a very bad prognosis, with not much of the targeted therapies available as yet, but that's exactly where we want to change the balance and bring the new paradigms. Yeah, and I think it's safe to say that we live in very exciting and hopeful times when it comes to cancer research. Yes, it's very, very true. And I have to say, hope is something that is very, very important to patients. And that's one of the things that clinical trials represent. I mean, you hear about a new discovery, a new treatment, and those clinical trials and the potential to become part of them really give patients like myself hope, hope for our future. Fantastic. I love it. I really do. I'm a big believer in hope and uh, we should always do whatever we can to, to bring hope to patients in whatever way we can. Two final questions uh, for you, Victoria and uh, Ivy. Uh, so first of all, how can pharma companies and patients work together to make a clinical trial more beneficial to patients? I think the easiest answer is they need to talk to each other and need to and talk to each other on a continuous basis. Obviously, we can prepare the drugs, we can prepare the infrastructure to start the clinical trials. But if they're not friendly towards the patients who are going to participate, it's only going to take us so far. That is why involving patients in designing those trials, in how you even 
prepare the information to share, to spread the word about this trial is extremely important. So we fully rec recognize those shortcomings and I'm very much willing to collaborate on this journey together with the patients because they are the main, the main purpose we do it. So why would we exclude them from the very early stages of what we are delivering? Yes. And Ivy, what do you think? I agree with Victoria. The most important thing is to involve patients early on in the development of a new clinical trial. Ask patients what they need, what they want. Tell patients the eligibility requirements so that, you know, we can indicate if we think that there will be any issues with enrollment based on our experiences. Um, that is really critical. Let us review the informed consent, see if the language it's written in is understandable to patients, because a lot of times they are very long and a lot of times they aren't that understandable. Pretty much involving patients at every step of the way is critical to getting increased accrual for trials. And before I let both of you go, because I know you have busy schedules, do you have one final message that you would like to say to people living with cancer um, who also may be considering being part of a clinical trial? I would say if a patient is living with cancer and considering becoming part of a, of a clinical trial, they really, really should think about it as a potential treatment option for themselves, not as being a guinea pig for investigation. There are no clinical trials for cancer, I believe, that involve anything less than standard of care provided to patients. And that's really important for patients to know. So basically, I would tell patients, yeah, go ahead, consider this, ask a lot of questions to make sure you fully understand the schedule of the trial and what you need to do and your risks and benefits, but definitely consider them as a potential treatment treatment option for you, for yourself. From my side, I would add to what Ivy really eloquently expressed. I think I would recommend for patients like this to be persistent. We fully recognize the information might not be on the, on the fully available somewhere on the internet. You just press the button and here you go. There is a list of trials, but be persistent, do your research, connect with your oncologist, ask questions about the available trials. They might have access to a bigger database or connections in their academic field. So try to find the one that is going to match your disease and your situation um, more closely. And that probably, if we all follow that approach, perhaps that would increase the value of clinical trials and also the perception of the clinical trials by the patients. Clinical trials, as Victoria so rightly put it, are the most important step in drug development. When we figure out if a potential new treatment is actually fit for purpose and if it actually helps people. Having both Ivy from the patient side of the table and Victoria from the pharmaceutical side on this episode, I think neatly illustrates one of the biggest challenges still remaining for clinical trials, which is communication and transparency between those running the trials and those who stand to benefit the most from them. And it's heartening to hear that strides are being taken on both sides to bridge this gap. The pace of progress in cancer research is so incredible, and it's clear to see that clinical trials are a window 
into that exciting world for patients. Clinical trials bring the potential for real change and a great deal of hope for patients all over the world today. My thanks again to our wonderful guests, Ivy and Victoria. I hope you'll all agree that this has been a fascinating episode. And if you'd like to hear more, then please subscribe to this podcast series so you know when new episodes become available. And don't forget to share this podcast with anyone else who is taking cancer on.